Just like we want to put the magic back into your career, our goal is bringing the magic back to building design by eliminating the overly complex and anti-creative elements of building information modeling. Learn more at arcol.io. That's A-R-C-O-L dot I-O. It's going to take all of us working in lots of different ways. And I would encourage people, identify what their unique passion is and then say it out loud and celebrate other people's unique passions. Find yours celebrated in return. Welcome to Tangents by Out of Architecture. Out of Architecture is a career resource network helping designers apply their incredible talents in untraditional ways. We're highlighting some of our favorite stories from the amazing people we've met along the way. We will hear how they created a unique career path for themselves from the wide variety of skills and talents they developed in and out of architecture. This is your host, Sylvia Lee. And I'm excited to share that this season, we're highlighting our Out of Architecture community members. At the end of each episode, you'll hear a little bit from a community member about where they are in their career journey. So make sure you listen to the end. Our guest today is Caitlin Taylor, architect, farmer, food systems designer, and managing director at Stone Barnes Center for Food and Agriculture. Caitlin shares her experiences developing a passion and career exploring food systems through an architectural lens. Hear Caitlin's insights into the power that architects have to redesign and rebuild food systems. I love how Caitlin looks at everything from all scales and views everything she does as an act of love. How would you describe yourself in three words? That's hard. I guess I would say the first one that immediately comes to mind is curious. I think I'm intensely curious, and that's been a huge guiding force for me in my life and my work. And I am loving and affectionate, one word. And a third might be driven, driven to make change. Curious, loving, and driven. I love that. And I do have to apologize. I like to give that without too much preparation so people don't like give me an overly thought out answer. And then it usually comes out in during the the rest of the conversation, those words. What is your background in architecture? I studied biochemistry as an undergraduate. I went to Wesleyan University for my liberal arts undergraduate education and studied biochemistry. I thought I was going to go to medical school or do some like bench research. I was I was thinking about applying for MD PhD programs. And in the course of my undergraduate education, took the only two architecture studio courses that were offered at Wesleyan. I really loved the opportunity to think through model building and to start to learn how to draw and define space. And so when I graduated from getting from my undergraduate education, I wanted to, I needed to take a break from the kind of grind of the med school pre-med track and started to apply, moved to New York City with my then boyfriend, now husband, we've been married for a very long time, who, so we moved to the city and I started applying for jobs in architecture firms with no experience, just as kind of what 
entry points I could find into a few different firms in the city to try to get a better sense of the industry. This was before the economic meltdown of 2008. So moving to the city without a job and finding a job when you got there was a little bit more of a reasonable proposition than it was in the few years after that. In During that job search, I ended up accepting a position to join Rafael Vignoli Architects in New York, which is a big corporate firm in the city where I was brought on to do a number of things that were not uh, project facing at the beginning. I started by working on some archiving and other kind of administrative and operational tasks. And, but my role and responsibility at the firm grew pretty quickly. And I ended up working closely with the leadership at the firm on a a couple big projects. One of the main one of which was the NYU campus in Abu Dhabi, which was in master planning phases at that point. So I worked at Rafael Vignoli's office for a number of years on that project and and really getting to be behind the scenes learning about how an architecture firm operates, how the industry operates, working on contracts and scopes of work and all of the like incredible complexity that goes into a 2.5 million square foot master plan in the Middle East and things like that. Then I applied to graduate school as a way of getting back to I had no formal training in architecture. I had no education in architecture. So I had learned an enormous amount through doing and learned an enormous amount on the ground in the day-to-day craziness of a high-level, stressful architecture environment in New York City. But I didn't have any real architecture education. So I applied to graduate schools and ended up accepting a spot at Yale in New Haven and and went back to school for to get my master's in architecture. So when I was in graduate school at Yale, my husband and I were living in New Haven and my husband who has always really loved food and food policy started farming. He he took a little bit of a right turn in his career. He had previously been involved in immigration law issues and immigration advocacy and activism and got involved in farming when we moved to New Haven. So very quickly, he and I both fell in love with the day-to-day seasonal realities of living on and working a farm. And so while I was still in graduate school, he and I started renting farmland just outside of New Haven, about 15 minutes outside of downtown New Haven, to start our own farm business. This was obviously a completely insane thing to do while I was in graduate school, but we did it. And we, when I graduated, we had developed a small but successful farm business and had two best friends who were both also farmers that we had been nurturing the dream of buying farmland together with. We, none of the four of us were, you know, independently wealthy or whatever. We needed to pool all of our resources in order to even consider what it would mean to buy property. But pretty quickly after, I guess it was, I'm trying to remember the timeline, but I guess it was about a year or so after I graduated from graduate school, we had finally 
found a piece of property that we were that we wanted to buy and we did that we bought a farm the four of us together we have a cooperatively we have a it's a cooperative business model the four of us each own the both the property and the business 25% each and we moved to a house that was built in 1693 where i still live with my husband and our son ellis who's now almost 8 crazily enough while i was pregnant we moved into the farmhouse all four of us adults <laughs> with one bathroom in this ancient, like crumbling farmhouse. And we restarted our farm business here in East Haddam, Connecticut. We, that was almost 10 years ago. That was 10 years ago now. And over the course of the last 10 years, we've built heated propagation greenhouse and a big wash station and a bunch of like fence and irrigation infrastructure. And our two business partners slash best friends have also each built houses on the property. So now my husband and son and I live in the old farm, the original farmhouse, but our two partners also live on the property. So we have this little farm compound that we've built over the course of the last decade. We grow certified organic vegetables and cut flowers, super diversified, like many different varieties of things. People always ask me like, what do you grow? As though they expect the answer to be like lettuce or tomatoes, <laughs> but actually we grow like millions of different things. and. We, this is, and this is where I live. This is my home base. So over the course of that decade, in parallel with the development of our farm business and our property and our kind of our intention about the role that we want to play in our food system, I was also becoming an architect. So when we grad, when I graduated from grad school, I got a, for, I got a job at a firm here in Connecticut where I trained, got my hours, took my licensing exams. I took all of my licensing exams when I was pregnant with my son. And the last one I took just, I don't know, three weeks before he was born. And the people at the Prometrics testing center were like really worried that I was going to give birth like in my exam, but thankfully I didn't. So I got licensed like moments before he was born. And I then when he was really young, when I had like a small baby, I was basically just trying to piece together a a schedule and a career that was flexible enough that I could spend some time with him and also be testing and exploring some of my ideas about architecture and the world. Hey everyone, it's Jake from Out of Architecture. This episode is sponsored by Arcole. We gave Revit a pretty hard time throughout of architecture, mostly because you didn't go to architecture school to spend your days stuck fiddling around with detailing drawing sets or waiting for a file to open. Arcole is bringing the magic back to building design by developing a BIM tool that is as creative and collaborative as you are. If you'd like to help build the future of BIM, head over to arcole.io and join in their closed beta for early access to their new platform. That's arcol.io. And so I was teaching, I taught some studios and seminars at Yale and Columbia, and was doing a couple projects independently one of which was a project that started as a student project, actually, when I was a grad student in an advanced studio that then won a big award and got some funding that kept it alive for a while in the early part of my career. While I was teaching and living on the farm and doing a couple projects independently, I was starting to, starting to further explore my hunch that the my like kind of gut feeling that the intersection between 
architecture and our built environment and our food systems was this relatively unexplored territory. And I, so I taught, I was able to teach a few studios that were my early kind of articulation of some of these ideas. What does it mean to really invest design thinking at a range of scales in our food system? How do we understand our food system, which is incomprehensibly huge and complex? How do we understand that system through the lens of design and architecture? And in the process of exploring those ideas and starting to articulate and define that as my perspective from which I approach architecture, I came to realize that the we always hear that the food system is broken. This is like something that we read about all the time. Oh, the food, global food system is broken. And I came to realize that it's actually not broken. It's performing exactly the way that it was designed to perform for lots of reasons why that I can talk more about if we want to go there. But it was designed the way that it is today on purpose. It was designed that way actively by corporations to maximize profit and efficiency over seasonality and deliciousness. And therefore, I believe that there is like a really incredibly powerful and important role that architects and designers have to play in redesigning and rebuilding an alternative system. I think that like regional food systems are not optional. I think that global and industrial food production, global supply chains, all of these things are brittle. They are collapsing already. They will continue. They will collapse. They are collapsing. And so we don't have, we're like at a time. And I, so I feel in my career, a real sense of urgency about being an active participant in defining the design solutions that will come as we build regional and resilient and seasonal and equitable food systems. So in exploring that area of focus and that work, I met some of the folks at Mass Design Group through teach. I was co-teaching with a couple of the people at Mass. And I was like very used to at that point in my career, very used to sounding like the crazy person, like standing on the table, ranting about like food and farming and capitalism and whatever. And they were like, wow, you like, this is all very relevant to a lot of the work that we do. Why don't you? So one thing led to another and I joined Mass. I joined the team at Mass full time in 20, oh gosh, 17, I think. I don't know. I forget. 2017 or 2018. And I think 2017. And I started with, so within Mass, I started the Food Systems Design Lab that was at a moment in Mass's trajectory where we were formulating these various labs, areas of research and projects and funding that were specifically in like parts of the world that don't often receive design thinking or where the market for design hasn't reached. And so there were a number of labs that were being created within Mass at that moment. And I took the helm of one that we called the Food Systems Design Lab, which was a more formalized place to explore some of these ideas. And in that, so I absolutely loved and still love Mass as an organization. It was my professional home. The people that I worked with were my professional family, my partners. I learned so, so much from 
working with an organization of people who are so determined to make make change in the world and to do so using the tools that we have as architects and designers. And I learned so much about nonprofit business models and ways to test them and stretch them and think creatively about the industry and the economics of architecture as a profession. And in that work, one of the projects that I started, that I commissioned to to do, was hired to do, was to design a campus master plan for Stone Barn Center. So I don't know if you know of Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture, but it's a 90-acre farm and food research campus in Terrytown, just 40 minutes north of New York in the Hudson Valley. It is the home, the campus itself is the home of two organizations. One is the Stone Barn Center, which is a nonprofit, and the other is Blue Hill Restaurant. Blue Hill is a two Michelin star, incredibly well-renowned restaurant run by a visionary chef named Dan Barber, who has been really at the forefront of the farm-to-table movement for the last 20 years. And so I worked with Stone Barns very closely with Dan and his team for the last four years or so on campus master planning, some building design for future build out on campus. And that really, that relationship really deepened and evolved into strategy work and, and into partnership. And I am three months into my role as the managing director of Stone Barns. And I'm really excited to be in a moment where I am like, maybe like very intensely doing what the intent of this podcast is, which is applying my background in architecture and design to a context in which I'm the only architect and where my tools of like of sort of systems design and systems thinking are being yeah, are being applied like in this brand new context and to, in order to like build a research institution that can be the epicenter of a, of a regional, like a regional transformation of a regional food system. So one thing that I liked a lot is that it feels like there's two sides of the coin where one, you're like, you mentioned like the crazy person on the table shouting about your passions. And it seems like you've always followed what like you really wanted to do regardless of what was going on like for example buying a farm or renting a farm when you're in grad school that's not a thing that most people do and it's probably not something that like makes sense to most people but in terms of your entire story it makes perfect sense but then you were also able to pair those actions with a lot of understanding of operations and also understanding of what your role is and what you're doing. So I'm curious, how do those relate to each other for you? Is it all very logical or is it also just following your gut? No, I would say I'm full of doubt. (laughs) So I definitely, there have been many moments in my career, in my trajectory that I have not felt like perfectly confident and clear about or convicted about what it is that I'm doing. But what I will say is that I think that this is partially a question of mindset. And I work really hard in my life, in my daily life, 
to embody these kind of two contradictory mindsets at the same time. I try to live every day with a real sense of urgency, with an, with an idea that like we have to act and we have to act fast and that we are facing very real converging crises of climate and economic inequity and global pandemics and social turbulence and injustice. These things are happening and they're happening now. And I live with this, like a fire of urgency about those things. And at the same time, in this kind of duality, hold in my head the idea that changing these things and having a positive like impact on these systems is more than any one of us can do in our lifetime. And so a combination of a sense of urgency and a long view of time is the way that I try to live my life and the thing that fuels fuels me in these moments of like uncertainty and doubt and, oh, this decision to buy a farm and while I'm still in grad school, like that doesn't make any sense. Like I'm fueled by the need to balance between that sense of urgency and that long view of time. I don't know. Does that make sense? Does that kind of help answer the question? Can you go a little deeper in how you balance that? I relate a lot to what you said about that urgency, but I also find at times like urgency can bring stress and then also acting too quickly. And also you always have to balance it with reflection. So how do you be productive in all of this as well? Um, it's something that I struggle with. Like I think we all do. And I it certainly can bring stress. It can bring waking up in a cold sweat at three o'clock in the morning kind of anxiety about my work and what will be effective and what's necessary. But through therapy and exercise and deep, meaningful connections with the people closest to me in my life, I have, I think, learned in an imperfect way how to understand what I am capable of like today <laughs> and how important it is to go for a run. Even if I only have 40 minutes, I'm going to feel better and I'm going to have a little bit of clarity and perspective in my brain when I'm done with my fresh air exercise for the, like that kind of like, pers like perspective about the value of that 40 minutes. I could write three more emails or I could go for a run <laughs> is something that like a lot of therapy and a lot of, a lot of testing and trying different things has gotten me to the point where I think I can understand most days, not every day. Today's a scary day, actually, what I can accomplish today. <laughs> and, and then you just have to do that every day and do it over and over again every day. Yeah, that's a really good reminder. <laughs> I feel like architects can have a tendency to like prioritize work over everything, or it's just like something that we become used to for some reason. And unlearning that takes a lot of effort. All of your different experiences, you seem to gravitate towards like operations or like really understanding the bigger picture or the system in that it occurs. And you, it sounds like you relate it strongly to design thinking or systems as an architect. Is that something that you've always understood or worked in? And do you create those opportunities throughout your career? Is that something you work on 
or that you like you you try to create when you move through different positions in your career? Yes, I think that the I so one of the things that I knew intuitively in my is that or earlier in my career was the idea that even when we are talking about the design and construction of a building, for example, that there are so many invisible forces at work on the the design decisions that are made and the impact that building has on the world around it. And then when I joined the team at Mass and I learned about a lot of Mass's early work in Rwanda and Haiti and Liberia and other places where Mass has done some incredible and continues to do incredible work, I was able to start to add texture and color to that under to that kind of gut feeling. At Mass, we often talk about the impact of our work beyond the building being this kind of catchphrase under the, to to signify and represent the idea that every design decision that gets made about the building material sourcing and the labor and economics of how a building gets designed and built and the sort of who the building is for and the ways that it will get used. Those, those decisions all have really profound systemic impact way beyond the scale of the building, all the way down to the scale of like individual building materials and all the way up to the scale of the whole economic or political or historical system and context in which the building sits. So my curiosity and my tendency is to be constantly scaling up and scaling down and scaling up and scaling down and thinking about systems in that way that you identified, but doing so in like very direct and very immediate coordination and collaboration with people who are as obsessed as I am with that scale at the scale of the building. So it's it's not an it's not enough for me to it has never been enough for me to just say, oh, I'm going to do, I'm going to be a systems thinking person. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with that, but like, I really, I always have known that for me personally, fulfillment comes when we see it in built form and we can touch it and we can, or we can like, when it's like a real material, tangible thing that is made and is um, created and is delicious or beautiful or both. And I, because for that reason, I've always really, I spent the early, I immediately, the second I graduated from graduate school, set about to get licensed and learned all the technical stuff that you need to learn in order to get licensed because I knew how easy it would be for me to just stay in the kind of conceptual and systems realm. And I really wanted to start with a foundational knowledge of what it takes to actually design and build buildings. And, and I remain like incredibly committed to that scale in the, within the larger like systems. And yeah. How did you approach farming with your, as an architect in terms of the way that you understand everything in the systems and the relationships together? That's a good question. I think that, so a couple like 
to my earlier answer about how determined I am to always be scaling up and scaling down and like how essential that is to my creativity and my way of thinking. I think that I have always understood the practice of farming and the kind of day-to-day and seasonal realities of farming from in the same from the same perspective. So I am like single-mindedly obsessed with my bearded irises, for example. I am like obsessed with my irises. They're about to start blooming right now. Actually, it's very exciting. Mid-May is when they bloom. <laughs> and the colors and the textures and the structure of these flowers, it's it absolutely blows my mind how beautiful they are and how weird all the colors are. And like see them as these incredible living things. I think in the same way that some people are like obsessed with certain buildings or types of building or the, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I, I see them at, I don't want to use the word objects because I think that actually has the wrong connotation, but I see them as these like little living things that, that I could just study forever. I have a, I'm like a totally amateur photographer, but I have a very fancy macro lens for my camera because photographing these flowers is like one of my absolute favorite things to do. I just feel like it gives me a lens, no pun intended, through which to study their color and structure and their like, their, the way that they are designed. But then at the same time, on the other end of the spectrum in terms of scale, I am like similarly obsessed with all of the mind boggling infrastructure of our current food system in terms of its actual built form. So my husband and my son find it hilarious and annoying when we're on road trips or whatever, because I am always like, oh, pull over, pull up. Because I have to, there's this crazy warehouse that to anybody else just looks like any warehouse that you've ever driven by on the highway. But to me is this like this very visceral uh, piece of evidence about what it is that we're trying to change in the world. And I'm constantly documenting through photography and drawing and writing and notes and all sorts of stuff, like all of the evidence from the scale of my bearded iris to the scale of Amazon distribution warehouses, what I see in the world that makes this work like real and alive and visible. Again, not sure I'm answering your question, but like that is you asked, how do I, like, what is the overlap or how do I apply my architecture to the life on my farm? Sure. Like I designed our wash station. I drew a map of the orchard to try to figure out where to plant the new orchard trees, like painted our ancient farmhouse, a very beautiful kind of color that's like, I, I make those decisions here as a resident architect and designer but the but the it's really the sort of curiosity and wonder with which i watch the bearded irises bloom or watch the landscape of distribution infrastructure spread across the landscape in connecticut that is the real sort of deeper answer to the question i think yeah that's really cool i think everyone appreciates and gets into architecture for slightly different reasons. It's always like some fascination or like amazement at a way of thinking about architecture. And that's what you've taken throughout all the different 
places in your life, which is it's really cool to see. That was an excellent example. What kind of skills do you, looking back with all your experiences, do you lean on or like work really well in the situations that you find yourself, like whether they're working with people or just diagnosing problems and finding solutions or like types of things that maybe related to problem solving, but, or like your, your experiences or the way you think about things? I think that one of the skills that I think is most important, this gets back to your first question, three words to describe me. I think that curiosity goes a really long way in almost any situation. (laughs) I am somebody who I'm a very empathic person. I am very observant and I like, I love learning about people and learning from people. And so I think that those qualities mean that I'm good at building conversation and relationship and trust. And I think that's really important in, it's really important everywhere in this moment where that we're in as a society, as a planet. I think that figuring out how to have conversations that start from a place of curiosity and mutual respect is really important in order to be able to find or create common ground in environments and contexts where it may not be assumed that there is any. And so I think that that's maybe one of the most important skills is being able to be humble and curious in forming and building relationships. Is that also, I think I see like the, you mentioned loving and affectionate. So the work you choose to do also impacts people and it tries to improve their lives in a longer, in a bigger way. So I'm assuming that comes from a place of love. Yeah, absolutely. I think that like, I do everything that I do from a place of love. (laughs) And I think that maybe it's like totally cliche to say that love is a very powerful force in the world, but I think that it's true. And, and figuring out how and in what ways to apply that love across scales is a huge part of a huge part of what we need, what we can do more of figuring out how to love our planet and love our yeah, love each other and love the work that we do is that's an incredibly transformative force in the world. And part of the reason why I think that the the work on in the food system is so essential is because I really think that deliciousness and nourishment are are like physical forms of that type of love and are and therefore are like this incredibly powerful and transformative force. Really appreciate how connected you are with what you believe in, what you are excited by, and what you get to work on and do for as a career for a living. Do you have any advice for people that may not have as strong of a connection but want to really move in that direction? How they can start to make decisions that align what they want to do with what they're passionate about? In some ways, I had an easy, I, ga- I gave myself an easy 
challenge in some ways by identifying early in my career an incredibly specific and incredibly unusual area of interest and passion and expertise that allowed me to define for myself a little bit what that path should look like. In some ways, that has been incredibly hard, as I'm sure you can imagine. So I don't mean to say that, like, I hesitate to use the word easy because obviously it hasn't been easy. What I mean by using that word is that I haven't ever been in a place in my career trajectory where I felt disconnected from my passions in the work that I was doing. And I've been very fortunate. Like, I'm incredibly grateful to be able to say that. But I think that my advice for people who maybe don't find themselves in that same situation, who are doing a day-to-day grind, quote unquote, that might feel disconnected from the work that they really want to be doing, is to put out in the world what it is that they believe in with the hope and belief that will start to connect them to people and opportunities where that unique belief is valued and can be operative. I think that like we each have something that lights our fire, right? We're each motivated by something. And as specifically as any one individual person can identify what that is and say it out loud, that will be like, we will be able to find as an industry and as a profession and as a society, we'll be able to find each of our individual paths because it's going to take all of us working in lots of different ways to come up with anything that we might even begin to call a quote unquote solution to any of these problems, right? It's going to take all of us working in lots of different ways. And I would encourage people identify what their unique passion is and then say it out loud and celebrate other people's unique passions, find yours celebrated in return. How can you identify like people in your life that you really would connect with? Such a good question. And it's a hard question for me to answer because I think that I have a very strong gut reaction (laughs) about people and things that sometimes is not a good thing, right? Sometimes it's very helpful. And sometimes sometimes I'm wrong. I'm often wrong. But I do feel like because like I am a because I have strong gut reactions about things it feels easier to me than maybe it does to other people to be able to say, you are really smart, really curious, coming at this from a totally different direction than I am, but that's fascinating and I really want to learn more. Come with me. Let's like go over here and try to like explore this territory together. But I think that it require that requires like, this was one of my other words, driven and determined, right? That was my third word. It requires being really determined and driven in and being really being willing to really work hard at at doing that exploration with people, at thinking creatively about what pathways can look like. I think that meeting the team at mass and joining 
mass design group and like when I did and where I did and based and based on where I was in the trajectory of my career was so fortunate. And I am so grateful to that opportunity. It was basically exactly what you're saying. It was like, here is a group of people who, all of whom don't fit in architecture, <laughs> each in a different way. <laughs> and, but we all want the same thing, which is like justice and beauty and equity in the world. And it was just an incredibly nourishing place to, to explore these questions and these ideas at that point in my career. And I think that I, so I guess I would, in, in response to your question, I would encourage people to seek out similar groups of people who share, maybe people who share values and who share questions, but come from different perspectives and are exploring different answers to those questions. That's where the real rich interdisciplinary work will happen. And that's where we will get to be really creative in our like world building, solution building. Yeah, that's really cool. One of the questions we like to wrap up with is how would you define an architect? I think that there is something that is inherently spatial about being an architect, spatial and material, which is not to say that like people who don't, who like build tables, build furniture, build houses, build big buildings, build infrastructure. I think that like we can define very broadly what it means to at, across the scales across which you can design and build things. Being an architect is being someone who can translate and manifest really complex, invisible forces through space and through materials, like in three dimensions. Very cool. And I love that you started with space. You were think you said you were thinking through model building, like in the very early parts of your education and like thinking and defining space. But it's also interesting that like you work so strongly with like systems, but also space as well. So it's really nice to see how they all connect. I think that systems take up space, right? That's the <laughs> so I teach an architecture of the food system seminar at Yale. I'm not teaching it this semester. Obviously, I'm a little bit busy, but I have taught it over the course of the last few years. And I always start the course by, by trying to remind myself and my students, like we are going to be studying the food system, but we are going to be doing so through studying the actual space that it takes up, like the buildings and the infrastructure and the actual physical three-dimensional space that is taken up how big is it? How many square feet is it? Where is it? What does it look like? What materials is it made of? Systems take up space. And we as architects, I think, have a system scale responsibility to get really smart about that and to not keep or not allow for the buildings that we designed independently of the larger systems. So in order to do that, we have to get really super duper smart about the space that the systems take up. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Caitlin as much as I did. Now let's hear from Thomas from the OOA community. My name is Thomas Muska. I, my practice is called Cassius Castings. I am a designer, an artist, an engineer, 
and a delivery boy. I design and build both interior home furnishings, outdoor furniture, and large interior design pieces entirely out of concrete. I build everything with my hands and I deliver or install it myself as well. That's really cool. And actually, why don't you share how you know or how you're connected to OA? Oh, of course. I graduated with my BARC from Cornell 2019. And lots of great things to say about that university. Probably my biggest complaint was there was zero really attention to marketing and to how to use your, your skills in a way for the modern economy. It was more of just, okay, make sure your portfolio, that drawing you did in third year will be great because there might be an SOM person showing up later and then you can show them that thing that you did in third year to them. And it was so refreshing to have Erin be, I think she had done it in the past, but it was like, a, she went back to ProPrac for my year anyway, but it was just, it was fantastic to have her like speak candidly about all of these things. Yes, you can either argue for a signing bonus or whatever, but the whole point, advocate for yourself and be aware of your fiscal situation because architects generally are not good at either one of those things. It seems like you really embody the OA spirit where like you're not <laughs> limited by what is in front of you. It's up to you to create the future you want. So what has your journey been since graduating and like your out of architecture experience? When I first graduated, I had a, an interview because I was not sure. I was like, yes, I'm going to be a concrete furniture brutalist designer for the rest of my life. I had an interview with Eric Owing Moss's office, actually. And I had built a couple prototypes. And I knew from architecture school, the only way to have these prototypes be useful is to photograph them, is to document them, have them in a way that I can then send them out and distribute and then give people a better understanding of these. So I had a photo shoot scheduled later in the day. I think this was sometime in July, 2019. And, and I had that interview with Eric going, Moss, he's okay, yeah, that's great. Send the portfolio and my people will deal with that. We're working on all this stuff. And it's this cool to see the deconstructivist architects do their thing. I had done some internships in LA, so I had to respect Moss's stuff. But at, the, at that photo shoot that I had scheduled, it was the same day as the Ridgeview earthquake, I remember. And I had a couple like, fairly rudimentary benches and chairs, but they were concrete. And there's, and if you still look at my stuff now versus like when it first started, you can see like the lineage, but it was like, I was just starting to kind of develop like an extruded design language. And I remember we heard, cause we were shooting the pieces out by this like long modernist pool. We, and the window was open and there was the Dodger game going on inside. And we're in Santa Monica, which is maybe 15 miles. It's close to the coast, whereas downtown is 15 miles inland. And we hear all of a sudden on the PA and Dodger Stadium is experiencing some seismic events right now. We're like, what? And then three seconds later, we like, we feel like a little shake happened in Samo. And all of a sudden the pool starts and it's a very long, narrow pool. It starts slosh. And I'm like, I look at my photographer, Nico. I'm like, let's get this. Let's go. Let's go. And so like, I, this just the spirit of the immediacy of that and having like pieces and the models there. I was just like, okay, maybe there's something to this. Maybe that this can be like an interesting experience and narrative. So after that moment, I decided let's do a furniture line. Let's do these installs. Let's do a design fair. And that was part one. Part two was creating this event that I call Poor Party, which always needs to be explained. <laughs> Thank you, English language. Basically, the type of concrete that I use is it's, it's a strong GFRC. There's no rebar in it. Glass fiber reinforced concrete, which basically little, it almost looks like little chopped vermicelli noodles, like mixed into the concrete itself. And what's so exciting about it is that 
It's, it's about 16,000 PSI, so a lot stronger than typical sidewalk concrete, about 3,000 PSI. But it only takes about 30 to 45 minutes to both set, harden, and get about half of its strength. So I've devised this with strength margins considered. I devised this con- series of events called poor parties where I will lead a, like a small team of myself, whether it be friends or other veteran pourers, and then with the clients and any other People watching, coming to these events, parties, usually have live music and such to mix the concrete itself, pour it into the mold that I had created. And that'll take maybe half hour itself. And then everyone's drunk and excited or high or whatever. And then they take out the piece all at once. And it's like a big kind of very clear narrative where there's like a buildup, a climax, and the piece is released and it's piping hot and people get to sit on it and such. So it's, it. I think that Immediately graduating and having being forced to this pandemic was a strange kind of blessing in the sense that it made me really emphasize the in-person and events nature of the work I do. What's like a good daily reminder for yourself as you like just go on this journey? A good daily reminder is that you have to, every day you wake up, you have to invent your income (laughs) and you have to, I think being, I think a a perpetual level of dissatisfaction with what you have done already, whether it be objectively either published or praised or consumed fiscally, like those are all wonderful things by clients and other entities, but it's good to be like, just, I always make sure at least 10 to 20% of my year is spent on just R&D of new projects, just whether it has a client lined up or not. Like I'm always like, you know, how I've done so much multiple extrusion concrete work that allows me to make all these different shapes and being really strong. But like, how can I take this to another point where it's solving even more, more problems, more issues? I think that's something that I've had to deal with because for instance, right now I'm working with the city of Long Beach to build 18 public bus benches for Artesia Boulevard. And then I'm also working with a musician that's using a chair of mine for an album cover and needs like little specifics and such. So that within that range, I play someone like anything from like the artist who who needs to be incredibly personal, like is I am my work and I need to be able to advocate and explain it in a way that's exciting and compelling and part of a vision that another fellow artist will be working on or, or the vibe is good and all that. And then at the same time for the Long Beach one, that, has, that, that kind of persona has to be completely killed. Like, I don't exist like that. I am Thomas Muska, the, the, it's always surprising when people are like, oh, why is the wait so long for your benches? Because I have to build them with my hands. You see these like scratches and such, they're from creation. And so it's always, oh, wow, you have to build them. That's great. And so it's, it's cool to be like, oh, I'm not just, I'm the manufacturer and I'm not just, I'm not just like grabbing a bunch of supplies and assembling them. I'm like, I am forging them. It goes from dust to liquid, to solid, to sanded, to coated, to delivered, to et cetera. Yeah. But when you see everything from, maybe I'll give a little bit of nod to Daniel Arsham, this like the intentional distress thing, because coming out of architecture school, you're like craft fit and finish. I need to make sure these corners are perfect, that the 400 sand grits there, that any little swirl or something is like acceptable. And if it isn't, I'm going to orbital sand it. We're going to spend two hours making sure this corner is beveled like my phone. Otherwise, Johnny Ive would be mad at me. And then, which is funny, but then sometimes you're like, you see this weird swirl and stuff. You're like, and then the clients, oh, this is great because now it's mine. So it's, it's funny to balance what 
what elements with your practice and with the market and with your own taste and with the client's taste actually are a good direction to to head in slash not being afraid of some issues or whether that stre- distress is deliberate or not, it just being there. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love how you just married like the whole process of everything, which is I think a lot of architects would just love to be involved in every step and then just like experience it and think about and just be a part of it. Yeah, yeah. The architects I most respect are the ones that often go on site and like really deal with the people who are building it. It's just, I think architects, and I don't want to be too like, I'm on my soapbox right now, but the fact that we've become value added, a lot of it's because we're either in different rooms of people that don't have to deal with the contract contractor or the construction workers involved. And when you're not there to advocate for specific points of design, then they don't get advocated for and they get cut. And that's always a sad, tragic thing. But hey, look at the World Trade Center itself. The top of it is going to have a beautiful David Childs, like Narwhal Tusk. The developer was like, Mike, in the way, in the way of the antenna, we're going to get rid of that. And now it's just a bare antenna. <laughs> so it doesn't matter the scale of the project. If, a, if an element is not figured out or advocated for or really championed by its architect, then it's not going to exist. It's not like it was before. <laughs> But yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for the reminder about advocating for yourself or like for your work in every yeah. step of the way. I think hey, that's like a it, strong theme. Aaron taught me that. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Hey, everyone. It's Aaron from Out of Architecture. If you find these stories inspiring and are looking for guidance, clarity, or just need someone to talk to about where you are in your career, please know that we offer 30 minute consultations to talk about what may be next for you. If you're interested, head to outofarchitecture.com slash scheduling to book some time with us. Hey, everyone. It's Jake from Out of Architecture. We love hearing your stories, but we know there's more out there that we've still yet to experience. If you or someone you know would be a good fit for the podcast and has a story about taking their architecture skills beyond the bounds of traditional practice, we'd love to hear it. Send us an email at tangents at outofarchitecture.com. Thanks for listening to our podcast. New episodes every two weeks. See you then.